0: This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts.
2: And I'm Craig Williams in Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob?
1: And I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Craig, on December 1st, new amendments to the federal rules of civil procedure will take effect and change how civil cases will be tried forever.
2: Well, these amendments are aimed to create a level playing field in the use of e-discovery. Many people believe that these amendments were created because of the many scandals plaguing companies.
1: Well, with technology becoming essential to business in corporate America, uh, many companies may t- t- face the task of uh, updating systems, going paperless, and seeking outside help to oversee the handling of documents in the pretrial phase. Uh, most likely, this is going to result in increased expenses in litigation.
2: And today, we're going to turn to our e-discovery experts to discuss how companies can prepare themselves before the upcoming rules take effect. We will also discuss how this change in e-discovery rules will affect corporate America.
1: First, we'd like to welcome to the program Michelle C.S. Lang. Michelle is a staff attorney in the Electronic Evidence Services Group at Kroll OnTrack Incorporated. Michelle tracks the evolving common and statutory law in the areas of electronic discovery and computer forensics. She also helps practicing attorneys integrate electronic discovery into their case strategy. Michelle has published numerous articles and is a regular speaker on topics of electronic discovery, computer forensics, and technology, and she's also author of the ABA book, Electronic Evidence and Discovery, What Every Lawyer Should Know. Welcome to the show, Michelle.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Well, Bob, our next guest is Dennis Kennedy. Uh, Dennis is one of our favorite guests, and he's also a well-known computer lawyer and legal technology consultant based in St. Louis, Missouri. He's focused on the education side of electronic discovery with an emphasis on the technology issues that lawyers face in electronic discovery. He speaks regularly on these topics. He's co-author of the column Thinking eDiscovery at discoveryresources.org, and he's written several influential articles and white papers on electronic discovery topics. His blog and website, denniskennedy.com, our highly respected and regarded resources on technology law and legal technology topics. Welcome back, Dennis.
4: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Well, let's talk about how the e-discovery rules are going to be changing coming up next month. I guess it's 30 days from now. What uh, What are the highlights that you see?
3: Well, I think maybe I'll start. Um, probably one of the biggest highlights is the fact that now parties will. Um, parties in any sort of civil litigation have a duty to address the issue of electronically stored data very early on in the civil proceedings um, in a mandatory meet-and-confer session. This is going to require parties to really come to the table a lot sooner than they ever have in the past.
2: Is this somewhat like the idea behind Rule 26?
3: Sure, yep, Rule 16 and Rule 26F.
1: Dennis, I was looking at your blog this week, and uh, I, I saw that you had a mentioned in a post that that you hadn't really uh, anticipated early on the the impact that these new rules will have on law practice, but that you've come to see, I think your words were, that there will be a sea change in the way we practice law. What do you mean by that?
4: Well, I... It's kind of an interesting thing, because I I look at the, the trends that were coming together on electronic discovery, and, and clearly there were big trends ha- happening, and, and so I felt that there was sort of a client-driven force, which I I know we'll talk more about, and also what I call a court-driven force, because I've got the sense that judges were really frustrated with the way electronic discovery was happening or not happening in this country, and I th- I sort of saw the rules as playing a small part in that, almost incorporating them into what I would call the court-driven aspect of that. But because I think if you look at the rules themselves, the changes look fairly modest. Uh, I mean, you can read the changes really quickly. But I think the timing of the rules uh, and the changes has has really you know, hit like that perfect wave. So a lot of forces have come together. And I think that although these other factors like Sarbanes-Oxley, records management, compliance issues, uh, were having an impact on the clients, I think lawyers had had stayed back from getting really involved in electronic discovery, uh, with, with significant exceptions. And I think that the rules have, have really brought it brought it home for lawyers. So that's what the, the surprise to me was, not that electronic discovery has become so big in 2006, but but the rules themselves have become such a focus.
3: And I think the rules have been a long time in the making. I know that the committee... Um, that has been working on on evaluating these changes has really been meeting, um, you know, for at least the last five years or so.
4: Right. I think that uh, in the the notes uh, to the to the rules say that the the advisory committee first heard about the problems with uh, computer-based discovery in 1996, sure. and then the committee got off the ground in the in the year 2000, and, and really these have been out and debated, I think, since 2003, so so they've been out there. It's kind of interesting, though, that, that the electronic discovery issues themselves have probably been around a lot longer. I remember talking to a couple of lawyers earlier this year who were you know, known for their role in technology, but talking about how in the late 1980s they were figuring out how to do discovery of, of email. Um, I think the first case that mentioned metadata in documents was in 1993. So, so the issues have been around for a long time. So, it, um, I think that was a sense of surprise I had that it, you know, the rules themselves would become the focus that they, they clearly have.
1: Well, isn't it? I mean, the rules themselves were amended back. What was it 19, in the 1970s at some point to talk about data in in discovery? But hasn't there just been confusion uh, among lawyers and among judges as to uh, well, confusion may not be the right word, but but disagreement uh, as to what constitutes data. Isn't that part of the reason for the that led to these changes in the rules?
3: It absolutely is. The, part of the rules are, um, a, a part of the changes are um, clarifying the definition of electronically stored information, and I think attorneys now will be um, talking a lot, using more acronyms, talking about ESI um, and what actually constitutes ESI.
2: So what does? <laughs> well, what is ESI?
4: It's electronically stored information. That's really the buzzword in the acronym ESI. And I, I think that may be the most significant aspect of these rules is now we put a name on this stuff. I think before you found that courts were trying and lawyers were trying to say, well, I can do discovery on documents and things. And is you know our instant messages or emails or electronic information, is that is that a document? And so I think you saw... Judges having to go through some contortions to fit something within the notion of, of document and, and so you, that became one area now i think it's it's very clear um that anything electronic is is potentially discoverable and and there's a a notion about the rules that they're uh, that I like where there's two core themes. One is standardization so that we get the same approach to electronic discovery in all the courts. Uh, You know, an obvious thing that happens with rules changes. But also, there's also a core theme of inevitability of of electronic discovery. And so I think that notion of of ESI, electronically stored information, becoming a new category, um, means that electronic uh, discovery has to be considered uh, which is different than actually needing to be done in every case. And I, I think that's, that's a big change. So now by becoming that third category of, of uh, uh, potential areas of discovery, that has really brought electronic discovery to the forefront.
3: We're certainly talking about spreadsheets and databases and um, Word documents and PowerPoint presentations and proprietary um, information, um, in addition to things like email and metadata. These are are all terms now that are going to have to be uh, a part of a lawyer's vernacular. And corporations and their lawyers that represent them are going to have to understand basic technology concepts as a result of these new FRCP changes. They are going to have to know where data is stored, how data is transmitted, how much data exists, and in what formats does it exist. And I think that failing to do so, um, certainly after December 1st, will inhibit a lawyer's uh, ability to prepare for depositions, um, you know, be prepared for trial and hearings, and, and just practice law in general.
2: How is this going to affect the small firm and the solo practitioner lawyer that uh, really doesn't understand this and doesn't deal with the kind of Microsoft-level cases that we get the big news reports about?
4: Well, I, th- I think that the, the impact of the rule, and especially the meet and confer aspect, is is that electronic discovery needs to be dealt with in every case. And I, I think, as I said, I think that's different than needing to be done. Because um, people sometimes say to me, oh, all I do is I represent people who have been in auto accidents. There's no way there's any electronic discovery that's going to be involved in that. And, and I say, well, can you categorically rule out that you don't want, to, You know, there's nothing relevant in emails that might. Have been sent after that accident, or instant messages, or you know, uh, uh, voicemail, or uh, you know, potentially something on the on a computer chip in the car that's not uh, not relevant. So I think it, the the requirement, at least in the the federal courts is that's going to have to be considered. You may find out that there's not really anything relevant, but I, I think that that's the sea change is that that this will have to be considered and then. Um, Sort of, For me, another underlying theme in these rules is that the concepts in these rules are very easy. I, I, the details are extremely difficult, and this stuff can get complicated very fast. And so in that small firm, solo lawyer setting, um, I think the big message is you're not immune from this. It's, it's, it does have to be part of the consideration.
2: What do lawyers need to be telling their clients in terms of maintaining uh, data? How long are they going to need to keep this data according to the rules?
3: Well, I think the rules, um, the rules are really saying that, that any data that um, is potentially relevant to a pending or impending litigation needs to be preserved, certainly for the life of the litigation. Um, and, and it's requiring corporations to um, get a handle on where it's, de- where its data lives and then preserving that data if they are involved in a suit or are likely to be involved in a lawsuit. Um, and, and implementing these litigation holds, um, is something that, that now we are finding lawyers and technology people really need to come together and, to implement these litigation holds so that backup tapes aren't being overwritten, so that um, focuses, you know, individual people that might, put, that might contain um, or possess uh, electronic information that's relevant to the suit um, are having their computer workstations imaged um, so that data is captured in a forensically sound manner. Um, and and so again, it's requiring that the technology folks and the legal folks really come together and start speaking the same language.
4: And I think I think Craig that a lot of people ask, how long do I need to keep this stuff? And and stuff is probably a, a good term to use in connection with ESI because it's so expansive. But I don't think there's uh, there's certainly no no specific answer in the rules. And, and I don't think there's any really specific guidance out there. And, and that's unfortunate because I know people would like to say, oh, I need to keep this stuff for one year and then I delete it, or I need to keep this for 30 days. There's a lot of different competing factors out there, especially for regulated companies, of how long you need to keep stuff and whether there's, and there's differences in the world of records management between documents and records. And so unfortunately, there's no magic answer and there's no magic bullet. But I think that these rule, what these rules do, is is place an emphasis, and I think Michelle was uh, talking about this, that on the uh, on the processes and procedures. And so, what what the companies are going to find, what corporations are going to find, is is they're going to have to establish at least reasonable procedures and processes to deal with data. That's that's where the real change is going to come from.
1: Well, beyond that, though, it, it seems to me that for small businesses or any kind of business, I guess there's kind of good news and bad news here. I think the good news, as I, re- as I understand the rules, is that there's more leeway to respond to uh, production requests and interrogatories uh, in electronic format, but there may be new burdens placed on businesses to, to uh to uh, provide data in a particular format, or or to format data in a in a providable manner, I, I mean, Michelle, what, what do you think about that? Or what what are the burdens that these rules place on businesses?
3: When it comes to production format, you're talking specifically about producing data for litigation, and the rules. One section of the new rules does um, mandate or provide some guidance uh, that that the production format has to be in a usable format, so you can't. Um, inundate your opposing party with um, paper files anymore. Um, Paper files, just paper discovery, paper documents are not searchable. They're hard to deal with. They're unwieldy. And so you um, are going to have to um, provide your opponent with something they can use. I've seen some cases recently where parties have um, produced email and documents um, separately on two different CDs or DVDs. And, and judges have said, listen, that's not usable, where you put all the email on one CD and all the attachments on the other and say, well, you guys go figure it out. You're my opponent. I'm not going to help you out here. The rules are definitely requiring, um, again, more process, better process, so that you're, especially when it comes to producing. I think when it comes to corporations and, and businesses, the bottom line is that they cannot, they cannot, 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 cannot prepare enough and I think that it's it's all it all comes down to preparation, getting a plan together, bringing bringing these bringing cross-functional groups together, and even if you're a small business and you have you know one person that runs your IT department, having a conversation with them to say, should we ever have to go through this sort of exercise? How are we going to make that happen?
4: And I would say that too that the 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 good news here. And it is a mixed message, I think. But to me, the good news is that I think the meet-and-confer aspect of this is, a, is something that's real and that real conversations should happen and there's real preparation that needs to, to go into that, that meet-and-confer and aspect. And so I think that knowing the IT systems is an absolute requirement and knowing who who is in charge of the things, how you can put your, your hands on data, where data is kept, is is all going to be very significant, but I think the other piece of that, on the confer side, is there's there's a clear invitation uh, to the parties to make their agreements to to come up with cost-effective, um, you know, less cumbersome ways to exchange the just the relevant inf- information, and and I think that uh, the best attorneys and and the, and the best uh, you know, business clients will take advantage of, of that opening and, and I think that is, is the real good news in these rules.
1: Well what does it mean that I mean, as I read the if I understand the rules that the, the party propounding a, a discovery request can can specify the form in which they want the, the responses provided uh, the electronic uh, information provided. Um, I mean what does that mean? What, what kinds of burdens does that put on the responding party to comply with the form specified by the requesting party?
4: Well, that's the you know, sixty-four million, sixty-four billion dollar question. I mean, who that? I think that's the that's the key thing. I mean, it's in the context of you know, it needs to be reasonably usable and those sorts of things. The general feeling is that ability to specify the form or forms. Uh, it's going to lead us to what's known as native file format. I mean, typically these days, people produce information electronically. There is a TIFF, which is a basically an electronic photograph, or you know, like an electronic copy of, of, that you get out of a copier of a document, or the PDF, you know, produced by Adobe Acrobat, which has, you uh, know, takes up less space, a little easier to work with, or a native file format, which is, you give people the Word documents, you give people the Excel spreadsheets, and this stuff gets complicated really really quickly. Again, I say concept simple, the detail's very complicated, because it's, does seem like hey, there's nothing easier than say, you have docu- you, you know you have Word documents given to me as Word documents. Give me the Excel sh- spreadsheets. Give me the, the your Outlook email. Um, but it gets complicated really fast. But I think the general feeling that I get out there is that this will drive um, these requests toward uh, the native file formats in a way, especially from the the TIFF type of approach, or that sort of general scanning.
3: To build on that, to build on Dennis's point, I think that this is an opportunity where, um, in these meet and confer, and confer conferences, and any opportunity you have as an attorney to get in front of the judge and help educate them as to what you're facing or what your client is facing, is very important. Because with the native file production uh, format, um, you know there there is this sort of misnomer that we'll just produce everything natively, and there are a whole host of um, drawbacks associated with the native file format and we've seen case law in the last couple of months come down where judges are starting to to evaluate that based on the education that they're getting from the parties and saying you know producing certain files in native format like spreadsheets does make sense but producing other form files for example, word docs and things like that may not be the most sense to produce in native, and so we're seeing some of these hybrid productions. Um, again, because of the limitations associated with native, there's no way to redact it. There's no way to base number it. There's um, If you're producing all the metadata that goes along with a native file, you might be producing some privileged information. Again, these are all... Um, these are all, like like Dennis mentioned, very technical. It gets very technical very fast, and you as an attorney have an opportunity to help the judge understand and appreciate the the difficulties of the position you're in. I think that the committee um, purposely, and I I did attend some of the advisory committee hearings, they they purposely wanted to um, provide enough guidance for parties and for the bench, but at the same time didn't want to provide too much guidance that are going to hamstring parties into a certain technical format or a certain technical area that might be outdated um, by the time December 1st rolls around. And so they're really looking for the parties to to, um, offer some guidance to come up with common ground like Dennis mentioned.
4: And I think to go back, I would say, Craig, to go back to your question about the solo and small firm, I think that you look at this format issue and you go, well, if all I'm looking at is there, I know there are three word documents and 20 emails I want to look at, and maybe there's this, you know two spreadsheets. Then I might say, well, I, I want those in native format, especially the spreadsheets, because there's typically going to be formulas built into those, and and that's pretty straightforward. When you, you as the volume increases, these these issues get really really difficult and so you could say well you know I'm just a a solo I can there may be some electronic discovery cases I can basically handle and once I learn the acronym ESI and native file format it, it could be pretty straightforward but it can get really complicated really quickly and if we're talking about stuff that's in databases uh you know, that's, that's a completely different world. Uh, you know, what does it mean when somebody gives me a, a Word 2000 document and, and I'm opening up in Word 2003? Does that change it? I mean, native file formats, like I said, simple concept. I think it's going to be the default where you see most, most people going and what the rules, I think, encourage, but um, a lot of details out there.
2: Well, it's time for us to take a short break. When we return, we'll get some final thoughts and some further thoughts from our guests on eDiscovery.
0: We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court?, And Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our practice center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to legaltalknetwork.com and send us an email.
3: If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show.
0: A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800 317 5221. That's 800 317 5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com.
2: Welcome back to Coast to Coast. I'm Craig Williams.
1: And this is Bob Ambrogi. We want to welcome back Michelle Lang, staff attorney for the Electronic Evidence Services Group at Kroll on Track, and Dennis Kennedy, a well-known lawyer and legal technology consultant. Dennis, let me ask you uh, about the safe harbor provision in, in the new rules. Uh, as I understand it, Rule 37 provides somewhat of a protection uh, for a party that that loses data in in the routine operation of their electronic information system. What does that mean and, and what does that apply to?
4: Well, you have it exactly right, Bob. And I think that, you know, these rules focus on the difference between electronic and paper. And, you know, paper is paper. It sort of stays paper, you know, We've, and nothing changes when i read it or look at it what we realize is that anytime we turn on a computer we open up a document it potentially changes it in ways that uh, may affect its value as as evidence and so rule 37 w- was was geared towards saying let's let's work with this sort of unique nature of electronic data and if there are things that happen in an ordinary course, you know, we're just operating our computer system in good faith, and Windows does some stuff that changes things, or, you know, by turning on the computer, something changes, or I'm doing normal backup, normal deletion, normal, you know, I have a records retention process where things get deleted at a certain point. As long as I'm operating in good faith, then I think Rule 37 says then I shouldn't be punished for that. And so in absent really unusual circumstances, that I'm not going to be sanctioned if, if evidence is lost in that good-faith, standard, normal operation of a computer system. And I think people have looked at that that, that safe harbor is. Uh, my thought is uh, people may be seeing more there than the, than than what's ultimately really going to be there. There's going to be a smaller exception or a smaller safe harbor than people think. But that's really what is dealt with. It's a it's a, a recognition of the real world. To say um, if if I'm doing something normal, then I shouldn't and I have a normal, reasonable process. Nothing bad should should happen to me. Now, what changes is that if I'm under a litigation hold, and, you know, I have some obligation to to not destroy data, then what counts as normal operation of my computer system, I think, will change, because my obligation will change.
3: What it's certainly not going to protect is is any sort of willful destruction um, of evidence pursuant to a litigation hold, or, or even maybe perhaps I think it'll be interesting to see where judges come down on, on, on leaving um, document destruction policies go unchecked um, in a litigation hold period, like Dennis mentioned. Um, it, it, likely, the thirty-seven uh, rule 37 safe harbor will not protect that sort of conduct.
2: Let's take a look at the practical aspects of this. What kind of tools should companies be looking for to get a handle on e-discovery management? What should lawyers be looking for?
4: Well, there's overlap, but I think there are almost two competing concerns there, and and the, the tool sets are a bit different. And I think the one thing that lawyers need to be aware of is that Electronic discovery is a small piece of this bigger picture of records management and compliance, and so companies are already doing things because of Sarbanes-Oxley, because of HIPAA, just trying to get a handle on their their electronic records management. And there's a feeling out there um, among the corporate clients and the vendors that, in the ideal world, uh, if we if you could get records management all down and you use the tools that did that, and you're archiving. Tagging information properly, all of that. Then, when you get the discovery request, all you'd have to do is basically click a menu choice and send the information, the you know, the relevant information to the lawyer to review, and you would save six months of of associates going through boxes and and um, you know, half a million dollars of legal fees. And so, I, I think that that notion is out there. But I think you're looking. There, there are different sets of tools that you look at depending on how you break down the discovery process. And and I think Michelle can probably uh, talk more specifically about some of those categories of products.
3: Sure, sure. There's, there's certainly, you know, a, a, I like to, the way I talk about it with clients is there are cases that you could probably might have the aptitude to handle either in the corporation or in-house of your law firm as well. Um, and then there are certain types of cases where you will want to consult with some sort of electronic evidence expert that can bring their um, services to the table. Um, if the case is is very large, has, has a large volume of data that's involved or has tight time frames or some sort of antiquated data or systems that maybe are out of date or very hard to deal with. backup tape data, a lot of backup tape data, for example. Um, you're likely going to need to to work with someone that has the that brings that technology expertise to the table. Um, with that said, um you know you're looking really for tools that and and services that um, filter this data and winnow it down to a more um, a, a more relevant universe per se. so, So using deduplication, which is technology that eliminates duplicates, think of how many times we have duplicates in our system when we send emails to 50 people and attachments to to hundreds of people, um, that that allows you to keyword search, that allows you to date filter, time filter. So if the litigation is only really... um, giving rise to to events that occurred in 1999 you can get rid of email that occurred before that or after that and really this is where the technology um is is shining and 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 providing lawyers with the ability to um do more with less
1: and Michelle can you think of any companies that might be able to help lawyers with uh, with some of that
3: <laughs> I can think of one one that I've been working with for about 5 years Okay <laughs>
2: Well, we've reached the point in our program where it's time to get your final thoughts and then get your contact information so our listeners can get in touch with you. And as you wrap up and get your final thoughts, one of the questions I wanted to ask was whether you think that these federal rules are going to start creeping into the 50 states.
3: Well, I know that they already have started creeping into the 50 states. Some states... Have already adopted um, these rules, or are considering adopting these rules? I know that in um, New Jersey, California, so from coast to coast, and every almost every state in between is evaluating what they're going to do here.
4: And in some states, um, the rules are already technically in effect at the at the state level. So I I I, I don't think that states are going to reinvent the wheel on this stuff. I mean, so I I think they will follow the the federal rules to a large extent on this. So, um, I, you know, uh, I, I think that lawyers are going to find it harder and harder to hide from these rules.
1: Michelle, uh, how can people find out more about your company?
3: Sure, sure. I can be reached at M-L-A-N-G-E at Krollontrack.com, or they can go out to k r o l l o n t r a c k dot kcom um, on our Track what, dot com website, we have a, a whole host of legal resources, sample forms, case summaries, um, and and the rules and the rule updates that are available for free um, for anyone that, that navigates to the website and to that legal that legal uh, research area. Um, they can also sign up for a newsletter that I write each month that gives really people who want to really know what the, the latest breaking news is in this area um, can certainly sign up for the newsletter at corallontrack.com as well.
1: Thanks. And Dennis Kennedy, where can people find out more about you?
3: Well,
4: you can always find out about me at my website, uh, www.denniskennedy.com. Uh, the email is dmk at denniskennedy.com. I have a blog there, and I write about electronic discovery typically on my own blog and then also on a blog I do called Between Lawyers, which is at, on corant.com. That's C-O-R-A-N-T-E.com. Um, And I write the regular column on the discoveryresources.org site with with Tom Mile and Evan Schaefer on uh, electronic discovery issues. I'd also like to point, uh, just as a resource to to the people listening, that Tom Mile and I recently did an article for uh, Law Practice Today, which is a webzine, and that's lawpracticetoday.org. It will be the October 2006 issue where we put together the best uh, electronic discovery resources that we could find on the Internet all in one, one article. So in, in one easy place, you can find that information. And it's, in a way, the article is, uh, Bob, if you'll uh, permit me to compliment you, as sort of an homage to, to what Bob has done over the years with finding the best websites on a certain topic and doing an article on it. But that's what we've done on, on electronic discovery.
1: Yes, and you beat me to it on this one, and you did a really good job with it. It's a great article, and I heartily recommend it to our listeners. Well, we'd like to thank you all for uh, participating in the program today. It's been very interesting. We could we could talk on end about this, but uh, unfortunately our time is limited. So this has been a good primer, and uh, we will stay tuned for more developments in this area. Thanks to both of you.
2: Well, Bob, it's time to say goodbye, and we will talk again next week. And uh, don't forget to save this podcast in case uh, we
0: get an e-discovery request for it.
1: (laughs) I will do that. Thanks a lot, Craig. Talk to you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.